0: Support for this podcast comes from CLR Clear. Fight back against annoying household messes with CLR Clear. CLR Clear is tough on dirt and grime all around your home, and we're not just talking about calcium, lime, and rust. They have an entire lineup of cleaning products for your kitchen, bathroom, garage, and more. Visit clrbrands.com to learn more. CLR Clear. Fight the clean fight. Eileen Fisher designs simple clothes to make your life easier. Timeless pieces and high-quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and more positive impact in the world. Visit eileenfisher.com and use offer code GIRLFRIEND to receive $25 off your $100 purchase. That's eileenfisher.com, offer code GIRLFRIEND for $25 off.
1: Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a
0: podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Sow. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda... Rachel Khadzigansa's feature on the making of still in Roof. This week in menstruation, fired for heavy periods at work, what the fuck? Plus, Zadie Smith against contouring, also what the fuck? And an interview with Nilifer Merchant, who's the power of onlyness we're loving, and why there will never be another Oprah.
1: Aloha, Ann Friedman. <laughs> how are you holding up? <laughs> oh my God. I am drowning in a pile of work. I was sick earlier. You know, like when you know that you're not being your best self, like I'm having one of those weeks. I mean, on this
0: end, everything seems great. I know how much you do for yourself, for the culture, for the community. So <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> so it's, it's, it's
0: it's looking good over here. I am feeling unusually on it because I haven't been traveling lately. And I was like, wow, that's all it takes for me at this point to feel like I have it together. It's like taking one big thing out of the mix. I'm like,
1: "Okay, Yeah, I'm like not having it together. I went to a doctor's appointment like a week early. That's how not together my life is. And then the nurse threw me a lot of shade. She was like, oh, you always 10 minutes late. So good. (laughs) (laughs) You showed up early. I was like, get out of my life. Uh,
0: Do you do that thing where you set your clocks ahead so that you will not be 20 minutes late? Or like, you know what I'm talking about? Like how some people trick themselves?
1: No, I I set all of my doctor's appointments like in my calendar 30 minutes early. Mm -hmm. Because you know how the doctor is, right? It's like you show up and then you still have to wait, like, which is ridiculous. And... I don't know if you've heard, but in Bill de Blasio's New York, the subway has not been working all summer. You know, I'm very up to date. It doesn't matter how early you leave the house. Like, you're going to be late for whatever the thing is that you're going to. And so it has been a summer of aggravation.
0: Summer of aggravation seems like it's kind of widespread. I feel like, you know, focusing on things like the subways aren't running or like my inbox is a disaster become achievable things to manage rather than like you know, Nazis are rallying in the street and I don't know what to do about like the misdirected anger of hordes of white men. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) I don't know. At this point, those two things are like same levels of aggravation to me. Yeah.
0: I mean, do you want to talk about the news?
1: (laughs) Mm, Not really, because I haven't been reading the news. I've just been reading uh, like tweets that friends send me. But yeah, what's going on in the news? Tell me.
0: Well, in my world, I feel like the meaningful things that I've read this week, Rachel Katsigansa's piece about Dylan Roof is 11,000 words of really difficult, but also pretty incredible work on some of the things that should have indicated to us that like the events of this presidency were a sure thing, were definitely coming. But also some kind of surprisingly hopeful takeaways in a way. I would recommend it. I would not say it's easy. You had
1: some hopeful takeaways from that being? I did. Well, honestly, like like not to say that like there were no hopeful takeaways. I just like didn't I just like didn't see that. I don't know. I mean, I guess like not
0: hopeful takeaways in the sense of she ends on the point that this is a community that is particularly like, you know, the church in Charleston where this act of terrorism occurred, but, like, also in a broader sense, where they welcomed her as a stranger. And, like, there is, like, a, there is a point about, like, a spirit of resilience, which is not to say that it's, like, hopeful about the problem itself or that, like, people who are this hateful and violent are all going to go away. But, like, there is something in it that is maybe I'm just searching for a silver lining in everything lately, but like some of the things that she had to say about the way that like that community in particular spoke to her and like talked about their experience.
1: I think fundamentally we agree. I think we're just reading it differently. You're right. Like Rachel Codsey is an amazing writer. If she writes it, I will read it. I wish she wrote more about Atlanta housewives sometimes. Rachel, if you hear this, please, we need a R-H-O-A piece. But I think that I was struck by two things reading that piece this sort of stuff is always going to be around. There's always going to be like some loser asshole in a balding, like Friar Tuck bowl cut who is going to try to ruin people's lives. I think it's because we like, at least like in the black community have this conversation so much about the place of resilience and forgiveness, because I remember when that stuff happened in Charleston, there was such a conversation around like, wow, like, These people are very Christian and they're very forgiving. And then there's this entire meme that you see all of the time whenever there are any kind of like racist, like terrorist attacks that black people are supposed to forgive the people who oppress them. It was true in slavery. It's like true in Jim Crow. It's true now. And it's basically like the same thing that everybody is talking about, like post-Charlottesville, like just forgive these people. And I think that Rachel was really deft to avoid falling into that trap and instead talked about how like black communities like persist because of the people who make them up and they persist because like justice is like justice is attainable and real. You're right. It was 11,000 words. I'm still sitting with it. She's such a great writer. Yeah.
0: And to be clear, like I didn't think that she was saying, look at these people who have forgiven the horrible hatred. I, I, I took away as well, like that persistence part of it being something that is generated from within and generated from like the love and support within that community, rather than saying outwardly, we forgive you or we need you or we expect something. That was my takeaway. It wasn't like, oh, look at these good Christians forgiving. And that frame, thinking about communities I am a part of and thinking about how I'm investing in the resilience of the communities that I'm a part of at this time and others is like a thing that I was thinking about after I read that. What's going to keep us all going? Not... For the next three and a half years, but also
1: indefinitely. I don't know, like, like forever. Yeah, yeah it's cr- it's crazy to me that in the midst of my like insane week, I had time to do that, but I like didn't have time to do like very basic like uh, life maintenance slash self care things. So, uh, yeah, it's like it takes like a really special person to make you read a long read immediately.
0: Yeah. So. I don't know. I mean, I guess I would rather talk about that and the work that she put into that and like the incredible reporting that she did and just focus on that instead of hate filled rallies that are happening right now. And like something that gives us a longer view of both what the problem is, but also how people are persisting. Well, you know, it's been a while since we've done it this week in menstruation. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yes. Actually, I read an article on glamour.com that had all of the classic signs of clickbait. Here's the headline. Woman sues former employer for firing her over a heavy period. Whoa. I was like, what's going on? Did a deep dive, like no shade to glamour.com. They had all the details. So this woman, Alicia Coleman, is a 911 call taker. She's suing her former employer that's like a job training and employment agency for people with disabilities. It's called the Bobby Dodd Institute because they fired her for like period leaks that she had at work.
0: Wait, like in that she accidentally bled on a chair or something and then they fired her?
1: Yeah, so she had an accident the first time And got sent up to HR and they like gave her disciplinary notice and told her that she'd be fired if she soiled another chair (gasps) from here. Like this is the language. She would be fired if she soiled, if she ever soiled another chair from sudden onset menstrual flow. Oh my God. And then the second time it happened, she was fired for failing to, and I quote, Practice high standards of personal hygiene and maintain a clean, neat appearance while on duty. So this is so insane because like raise your hand if you have soiled a piece of furniture at work. I mean, (laughs) like I I am imagining many hands raised. And if you're somebody who gets a heavy period, you like know the humiliation that comes with the period leak. Like this is... You know what I mean? Like, first of all, like, nobody's like, let me just, like, bleed on this piece of furniture and, like, that's cool. Imagine, like, sitting at a desk job where you have to take phone calls and you can't, like, at your leisure go to the bathroom all the time. And even if you could, like, whatever, you have, like, chunked out on the chair. And that is a reason to fire you.
0: I mean, like, honestly, this is one of the things that, like, is baffling to me because I'm like, aren't there people in hr or in leadership positions at this company who have gotten a period before like that's what blows my mind i'm like how do you not understand that this is just a thing that happens
1: it doesn't matter and like if anything i would wager that women actually are bigger perpetrators of period stigma because of the like internalized shame that they feel please like your man boss doesn't know that you're bleeding they're like fucking idiots so, her case, this woman, Alicia Coleman's case, is being taken out by the ACLU. They are arguing that Coleman's termination violates Title VII, which outlaws workplace discrimination based on pregnancy, childbirth, and related medical conditions. Which is like kind of, you know, like that's kind of novel. That's like a trick you would see on a like TV show about uh, lawyers. <laughs> I'm glad that it's happening in real life. This it's like both ridiculous but also terrifying. Who doesn't unexpectedly get their period at work? And the fact that you can be fired for that. Instead of accommodated, you don't know. People like bleed like that for many reasons. I believe that in this woman's case, they were claiming that it was pre-menopause. Guess what? That's not a condition that's protected by discrimination under the law. (laughs) So it's just, you know, like it seems like clickbait. It seems like a little too crazy. Like a thing that I would have never thought about, like I would have never I would have never thought about that. And like, here's the truth. If you have worked with me, I have definitely bled on a piece of furniture at our workplace. This is crazy.
0: Yeah. Honestly, when you started talking about this, I assumed it was something where there was an employee suing because she was subject to mocking from coworkers or judgment from coworkers like honestly did it, it did not occur to me that you could be fired for something like this fired i mean it's
1: no they're literally uh, like this 70 dollar chair that we got from the chair depot or whatever <laughs> is more important than a medical condition that you have also like people bleed get over it like imagine you like get your period accidentally it comes early it comes late or it like comes in hot like you just like you just don't know yeah. And the fact that that's like one more thing that you have to think about, like it's so ridiculous to me. I hope she wins. I hope this like stupid business gets shamed to no end. But more than anything, I really hope that it's a thing that like more workplaces talk about because I cannot believe that this is possible, that you can get fired for like getting your period on a piece of furniture.
0: Yeah. I mean, also tangentially related, but this is this is adding to my desire to... Make a pre or perimenopause episode of this show because I was talking to a friend who is having some like pretty intense perimenopause symptoms recently, and then like reading that this woman's heavy and unpredictable periods were a pre menopause related thing. I'm like, we really need to get on that. I'm adding it to the to do list. So if you have a pre or perimenopause story, please send us an email and going to do it, going to talk about this in a way that is constructive and interesting as opposed to getting fired for a little bit of accidental free bleeding.
1: I know, but also like couching the bleeding in like standards of personal hygiene. Oh God, I I know. It's like, even on this show, we like make fun of like menstrual feminism or whatever, like talking about your period all the time, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that, like, you still have people that think that it means that you're dirty because you have a period is, like, why it's necessary. Right. Completely. This is why. Yeah.
0: Meanwhile, like, like every person with a penis in that office is probably coming back to work after not washing their hands. And like, that is not framed as a hygiene issue.
1: <laughs> it's shocking. Oh, my God. This, this is why I work. From I mean, statistically like, I, speaking, I can't even statistically speaking. Was, oh, my God. Good job to this lady. Good job to the ACLU when they're not defending Nazis with my money.
0: Okay, have you, seen, have you seen the latest from Zadie Smith? I'm not talking about a novel.
1: <laughs> no, but like Zadie has been like acting out this summer. It's been crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah, so the latest thing is that she is not into contouring. So at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, she was like, listen, contouring, it takes too much of your time. Uh, it's a waste of time. Boys aren't doing this. So like, listen, little girls, don't spend your time on your face. Don't waste an hour and a half doing makeup. To which I say, cool choice for you, Zadie Smith. Do whatever you want to do with your life. (laughs) But don't prescriptively declare how everyone else should spend their hour and a half.
1: Totally. I think that like in the context of like saying, yes, maybe my four-year-old daughter should not be contouring. Like, absolutely. Your four-year-old daughter should not own a Kylie lip kit. Or a KKW contour kit. All of those things are true. And I, like, totally get parent concerns. You know, like, how—especially people who are not, like, really in tune to, like, how insidious patriarchy is. And then they start having children, and then they, like, see it in front of their eyes. Like, uh, it's like all of those dad CEOs who then start paying their employees, like, more money. Like, their women employees more money because they're like, what? Like, one day somebody will treat my daughters like I treat other people's daughters. Can't believe right, it. like buys
0: one anyway, princess costume and is suddenly woke like that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah,
1: you're just like what? Like when their kids turn three, they're just like what? Did you know that like object objectification is an issue? And I'm like, excuse me, you've been friends with me for how long? Right. Um, but anyway, so like I get it. I totally like and I agree. Yes, like having that conversation with your kids. I think that Zadie Smith's comments were really. Unfortunate because she, like, extrapolated this, like, greater thing about beauty, especially when you put it in the context of, like, the kind of the idiotic piece that she wrote on Harper's this summer that was all about how, like, Black Americans need to, like, finally get with the program. You're, like, Zadie Smith, you're very good at writing novels, but you're, like, kind of clueless about, like, Black global experiences, even though you're a Black global yourself. Because it's really easy For, like, a conventionally pretty woman to, like, tell people not to worry about beauty standards, there are reasons beyond objectification and whatever in, like, capitalism that people participate in beauty. It, like, I don't know, it just, like, seemed very clueless coming from her who was, like, wearing a turban and, like, definitely had her eyebrows done and, like, definitely had, like, flawless skin complexion to be like, oh, yeah, like... Everybody is beautiful. You should, like, not wear makeup. Yeah. It's like, lady, open your third eye. There is so much more happening here.
0: Yeah. I mean, also just, I, this is a, there's a whole strain, I think, of, like like, women criticizing, particularly other women's choices under the guise of feminism, where I get so annoyed. I'm just like, just because you choose it doesn't mean it's, like, objectively the right feminist choice. Like, just choose your choice. <laughs> feel good about it and like recognize that other people get to make other choices like I'm sure there are things in Zadie Smith's routine that I would be like you're spending how much time on what now excuse me like I just
1: I mean are you kidding me like Zadie Smith's entire body of work is this <laughs> It's like her writing about beautiful people and like rich people it's like come on now <sighs> but you know it's just like to me it's just one of those like when it comes to personal choices, should everybody be challenged? Like, absolutely. But like one, like don't say stupid things. This was like a very stupid thing to say. But also it just comes across as very preachy. Deal with your own issues. When your like four-year-old daughter stops contouring, like maybe you can lecture other people about things. Right. You know, she's she's a very smart person. It's like choices don't happen in a vacuum. I just, it's, it's just like always funny to me that this kind of advice too is always like doled out at women. Nobody is just like young men maybe you should wash your faces more and then you wouldn't look like Steve Bannon one day like you know like there's no like male like like beauty or like part. how
0: many hours are you spending grooming your beard like what could you be what could you have accomplished in the in the 40 minutes you spent grooming your beard this morning
1: people just like love shitting on women it's 2017 and if you don't know that there are both like positive and problematic aspects to the beauty industry then like you're the fool right <laughs> not the people who are like buying Sephora lipsticks well
0: there's also a way like I actually think that as a as a rhetorical point to make the way to do to make a point like this without being judgy is to contextualize it as personal experience, right? Like there's a way, it's like Zadie Smith wanted to sit up on stage and be like, listen, I used to spend an hour and a half a day contouring. I started to question why I made that choice. I don't do it anymore and I feel great. That's totally unobjectionable to me. The problem is being like, hello, everyone who's spending time doing something that I find superficial who is already super judged by the minutiae of their looks. Like, maybe it's your fault. Like, that is the wrong, the wrong framing. And so part of me is just like, wow, you, again, you work with words for a living and you, like, don't know how to frame this in a way that it is, like, can be heard, in a way that it's valid. Like, that to me is, like, I'm like, that's, like, get it together. <laughs> this is your job.
1: <laughs> I know. And, like, don't frame it, like, using your kid as, like, some sort of, like, universal experience. Because also, like, when I hear this all the time, like, from parents, I'm always, like how are you raising children that are standing in front of the mirror for an hour every day? Like, and you refuse to take responsibility for it. Like somehow they're like learning it on TV. They're learning it at other people's houses, but like you have done nothing wrong. If we lived in the fair world, this would be just as easily an indictment of your own parenting as it would be like other people's like problem. Right. Oof. Listen, I don't got no kids and I don't got no problems. <laughs> so I'm going to be fine.
0: Do you own a contouring kit?
1: No, but I'm thinking about ordering the KKW ones because they're on sale and because I like just want to have it. It's like I've watched so many YouTube reviews and you know I don't know actually how to contact.
0: Oh my god. It's it's it is a thing of mystery to me. It's like it's it's like when people attempt like extreme baking or, like, extreme feats of, like, physical strength. I'm, like, contouring. A mystery. Like, what? <laughs>
1: oh, I thought you meant, like, makeup baking. Wait, what? And I was what? just like, wow, you, like, already know about baking and you tell me you don't know how to contour? That's uh, the next question. Wait, course. what is
0: makeup baking? I don't even...
1: <laughs> oh, my God. So, like, I have a passing knowledge of what contouring is. Baking, I have no idea. I, like, watch the videos all the time. I still don't get what it, like, ultimately achieves, but it is a makeup technique that people use And I don't get it. All of this to me is just like, it's a ploy to like make you buy a lot of makeup. Because like clearly I wear makeup and sometimes I even do it correctly. And I only use like a third of what the videos recommend.
0: Wow. Yeah, this is some advanced, advanced makeup knowledge. I can't even believe that I was like accidentally mentioned a thing that is a deep, deep like beauty Oh yeah, I
1: I was like, Anne, you're like so hip. You like know all the links? Huh. No, no. You meant like you meant like actually? Like no, as snacks. if.
0: I mean, I was raised by a woman who has never owned a single item of makeup, and so I feel like I've been I've been starting from a deficit my whole life when it comes to any beauty product. So I am definitely not here to teach anyone about about makeup.
1: <laughs> Listen, I just like watching the makeup videos. I like refuse to do them because in the time that I've taken to watch the videos, that's the allotted time I had for makeup that day. It's like not happening. Yeah,
0: I also respect the idea that like, listen, I'm not contouring. I'm just spending an hour and a half watching contouring videos, like reclaiming your time if that's what you want to do. Reclaiming my time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Also, I'm just trying to get it. It's like no two people do it the same way. And it like all of it just seems like a waste of product to me, but I'm mesmerized. I just like... I like I finally like get YouTube it's like it's been so long and now I have like things that I watch all the time and I was like okay I get how this like I get where this part of my brain gets pleasure from thank you YouTube Uh, I love it Every generation has its challenges. Some would say that's the reason for its progress. It might start with a small act of kindness or a big idea that changes everything. It can come from the tiniest voice or the voice of a generation. Or it could come from me, Aminatu. I am one of six change-making women featured in Eileen Fisher's Good Goes On campaign this spring. The campaign highlights women empowering women, the importance of sustainability, and the power of good design. Eileen started in 1984 with the idea that simple clothes can make life easier. And after spending a day on set wearing a super comfortable ultra-chic jumpsuit, I think she's really on to something. As a company, Eileen Fisher believes doing well by doing good, and that's reflected in the way their clothes are made timeless styles and quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and a more positive impact on the world. It was a real honor to be featured in this campaign and meet the other women making a difference in their community. I've been a longtime Eileen Fisher fan, so this was a dream come true for me. You can visit EileenFisher.com and use the offer code GIRLFRIEND to receive $25 off of your $100 purchase. That's EileenFisher.com offer code GIRLFRIEND for $25 off. For our next segment, I talked to Friend of the Pod, Nilifer Merchant, about her new book called The Power of Onlyness Make Your Wild Ideas Mighty Enough to Dent Through the World. It's a book that I really enjoyed reading this year. Who is Nilifer? Is she
0: a biz lady? Is she a tech lady? What's her deal?
1: Nilifer is a biz lady and a tech lady who is really smart. She's like ranked on the thinkers 50. Do you know this is a thing? The like 50 like best thinkers about like management and business, a list probably we will never be on, <laughs> which is fine. But yeah, she's she's really cool. She lives in Silicon Valley and she totally like totally, totally gets it. She had this TED talk in 2013 that was called uh, Sitting is the Smoking of Our Generation That Scared the Crap Out of Me. And uh, that's when I started doing, do you remember this phase of my life when like all of my meetings were walking meetings? Yes, I do. It was like,
0: you know what? That was like a like, deep tech period of your life. I feel like the walking meeting is something I associate with like tech people.
1: <laughs> yeah. So Nilifer brought the walking meeting into my life. The walking meeting still not gone. Yeah. So she like wrote this book. It's really a vignette into like what makes people unique and how you can channel your own power into making a difference. In your world and in the world, we've talked about this like concept of onlyness before, which Nilifer refers to as like it's the spot in the world where only you stand in. It's about your own distinct history and your own experiences and your visions and your hope. It's a really fun book. And uh, here's my conversation with her. I'm really excited that we're doing this, Nellifer. I'm so glad because this is
2: my favorite podcast and I'm going to like squeal when I hear it come on the other side. <laughs> Tell us the name of the book that you've written. It's called The Power of Onliness," and the subhead is Make Even Your Wild Ideas Mighty Enough to Dent the World. I love the idea of wild ideas. Yeah, it's very Cheryl Strayed, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to say it, but it's like uh, business, leadership, Writing uh, meets like Cheryl Strayed meets like get your shit together, meets <laughs> uh, you know like harness your own
2: like internal everything that makes you unique. I think the whole thing about what is it you're going to do with your one wild and precious life from Mary Oliver was certainly the inspiration for a Wild. But there was also this thing that I think a lot of women, especially, face, which is we're told we're too weird, we're too wild. Or I think the line that I get a lot, and a lot of my girlfriends get at least, is, you're too much.
1: Oh, God. Say that one louder for the people in the back. (laughs) My God.
2: (laughs) And so I was trying to figure out how to characterize the fact that we're not weird, we're not wild, and we're not too much. But sometimes you might seemingly think our ideas are wild. So how do you even get those ideas through is what I was trying to get to.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I love that you kind of pose the whole um, concept of onlyness in the book itself as problem solving. Everybody kind of has the wish or the ability to, to want to make a difference. And the thing that will almost always stop us is like a lack of credentials or a lack of access to power, or not being able to convince like whoever the gatekeepers are in the hierarchy that you need to, to change to, to see you as somebody who is competent enough to do that.
2: It's true. How do we without status still make a difference? And I'm not sure if you know the story of how I actually coined the word. Do you know? I don't think so, actually. So it was back in 2012. And you remember, I'm an innovation person. I'm not, um, I'm not used to writing in this more personal way. So, so the background was, I was trying to figure out how value creation was fundamentally changing, and, and I could tell something had really shifted. So let's use, a, a, use an example we can all relate to. So back when, because I have a lot of gray hair, back when <laughs> there were mobile providers where, you know, they used to pick what apps you used to have. So they used to maybe pick three or five things that used to be called on deck. So Nokia, Samsung. Um, Apple, Motorola, all those guys went through this like long laborious process of picking. And then the developers probably spent two million in development to get even considered. And then Apple came along and said, what if we just changed the model so that we don't pick, but the marketplace picks. And you went from having, as a consumer, three to five choices to having literally thousands. As a company, you went from having to actually control everything to letting the process be much more co-creative And then the most fundamental shift was that it seemed like ideas from seemingly nowhere could actually have a shot. And I was trying to figure out, what is that? Because that seems like the tectonic shift of innovation, where ideas coming from any place in the world, and so I came up with that spot in the world only you stand in.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. So onlyness is this notion of connecting individual ideas that can come from any one of us into ways that can actually create scale because now you can find the ways in which other people care about the same thing and actually make that idea big enough to dent the world. So that's the history of the the word. What I noticed, though, is I'd, le- I'd forgotten to address something, right, which is I said, oh, this is how the world's going to change in terms of innovation, but then I hadn't actually addressed how. How would someone living out of their only actually make a difference? So that's where this book comes in. I love this. The other thing, too, I think that you
1: touch on, like, really early on, is learning how to know and to like evaluate your own value. And I think that that's something that you've really helped me see for myself. But I think that in the book, you just lay out such a like, like a thorough case for it of like finding your worth in yourself, as opposed to all of the signals that society and everybody else is throwing at you. Why are you so passionate about this?
2: Well, I I mean, I think like a lot of us, I've been lived, I've lived my life through a series of stereotypes. So as an example... I was raised an Islamic girl, raised in India and then and in America, raised to actually have an arranged marriage. So my identity and, and the worth that I had to the world was to be able to marry well. I wanted one thing more than to marry well, so I said, fine, I'll do everything you want me to do as a family, I'll make sure you get your house You know, when we do an arranged marriage, but I also want you to please make sure this guy will let me have an education. He was a pretty wealthy guy, the guy they were doing this marriage to. and." And I was pretty sure he was gonna to be totally cool with it. And they were like, no, we can't afford to ask because we want the house, so we negotiated for the house, but we can't afford to ask for your education. And I remember just thinking, but that is the one thing that will let me actually fulfill myself, right? But what everybody else was doing to me is saying, for you to be good and worthy, you have to be conformist. You have to do as everyone else wishes for you, not what actually drives meaning and purpose in your life. And then, of course, I worked as an admin at Apple and saw that young people who didn't have degrees get passed up for their ideas. And then I worked inside big companies and saw that innovation, the best ideas were often from the craziest places in the corners, and yet they were usually the people who were ignored. So I just kept noticing how across different groups you could get dismissed even though you absolutely had something to contribute. And so then the flip is okay, how do you own that? How do you have your own sense of, you know, the technical term is agency, right? Psychologically, how do you have that sense of agent that says, I can and will and should advocate for my own perspective? That's incredibly
1: powerful. I identify so much with that as somebody who, you know, is from like a developing country, but also like a woman, and how much you... It, it almost feels selfish to, like, go to, like, dig that deep into yourself, you know, and believe that you, like, you can stand in your own worth and stand in your own ideas and be a catalyst for the change that you want to see, as opposed to being, like, part of a larger, like,
2: communal design. And so, I don't know, I think that that's amazing. One of the interesting pieces of research I found in the, in the process of writing the book was, But this is not something that just women or people of color or young people or, you know, all the stereotype kind of groups, sort of the people who are typically not seen. It also applies to conventional people. So the statistic is that 61 percent of us give up our ideas and and basically conform to whatever group we're a part of. 61 percent. And so then I click down on that data and it turns out that straight white men, 45 percent specifically, actually do the same thing. So the examples were a young man who wore glasses in order to look more experienced. Or the guy who wouldn't admit that he wanted to stay home with his newborn because he thought that would make him look wrong to his colleagues, like they weren't professionally minded or whatever. And so there's a bunch of people who are basically trying to figure out how to fit into some archetype. 61% of us are trying to fit to an archetype so that we can actually be you know be at that table right because it it
1: feels like that is like it's a proven value that you can just like be something that already exists
2: right but that's not where our value is ever going to show up our perspectives our individual takes on the world our novel ideas are going to come from us spotting something that basically it could mean that no one else sees at the very beginning but until we believe it's worthy of even chasing we'll never know that's true. One of the other things that you discussed here is how your onlyness
1: is that one thing that every individual can bring to a situation. So one thing that's really fascinating is how this all makes like a really good business sense. Because if all we are doing is looking at the same people in power, to basically be catalyst for innovation, nothing really changes.
2: Right. I'd like to say this is the way we change everything. Personally, socially and economically, because until we actually figure out how to harness that 61% that's giving up their own ideas, we're losing all the innovations, solutions, breakthroughs that humanity most needs. I'm fascinated by all the women entrepreneurs I meet who have these really novel takes, and I'm like, well, where have you gotten funding? And they're like, yeah, I'm bootstrapping it or whatever, and it's because they can't get funding. And you probably know the statistics that venture capital spends less than 4% of its dollars towards women. Yep. And, the, and the number drops even lower when you go to women, people of color. And I'm like, but those people have solutions to offer. And so what you're actually saying is, I would like to not solve cancer, or I would like to not solve X, right, whatever it is, because I would like to not fund the people who are most likely to have the future of ideas. What are good practical ways you think that, um, especially for like, people
1: who listen to this podcast, who are a lot of times early to like mid-career and all have the same freakouts that we had when we were in our 20s and 30s. Like, what are some practical ways that they can celebrate their onlyness? So, uh, so,
2: by the way, I still have freakouts, and I, and I think it's perfectly fine to have freakouts. Are you telling me that the freakouts
1: last past 33? Because I'm really counting on that not being true.
2: Last week when I was recording the book, I came home, and I'll come back and answer your question, I promise, Amina. Um, so I came home from recording the book. I literally came inside the house, found the softest blanket because I have different blankets in different rooms, found the softest one curled myself into a corner, curled with the blanket on top of me and laid there for an hour thinking, I must be the biggest loser because I had just finished listening to myself. No. And, and listening to yourself talk for six hours in the sound booth is a way to make you want to lose your mind, first of all. Tell me about it. I do a <laughs> podcast every week. <laughs> <laughs> but like the, the person's telling me, you know, you're not um, you're, you're not doing an uplift at the end of the sentence. You've probably taught yourself not to do that uplift at the end of a sentence because women are often punished for that. And So I'm sitting here like processing all the feedback from the day and thinking about all the different ways I have, even in my own voice, conformed, right? So back to your question, how do each of us do it? So I think one of the first things is to recognize that your history and experience, visions and hopes is everything, right? So break that down, history and experiences. Let's just start with, for those of us that have had shit happen to us, most of us try to do this thing where we're like, Mm, no, that didn't really happen. Or we try to like deny it. And yet that thing is probably the reason why you give a shit about something. Um, so what's an example? So I used to be super embarrassed whenever people asked me where I went to school because I went to community college and then I put myself through a four-year school and then at my university all in part-time programs. So whenever people ask, I always sort of mumble it underneath my breath But it was exactly that experience that helps me to understand why community colleges are the entranceway to people actually having a leg up in society. And I'm one of the biggest advocates of that system and how we could actually enable everyone to have a better education if we supported it.
1: This is blowing my mind because you are literally one of the smartest, most amazing people I know. I had no idea about this about you before I read the book.
2: Right, but I think that's the thing is we sometimes like and now I'm so proud I came from a community college. And the thing that can be a source of shame can actually turn out to be the thing you love because it's the reason you care. I mean, the fact that I sat there and plugged away for 12 years to get an education where most people had four years or six years says something about me. So what is it that you that's happened maybe to you or that you've had to persevere or shit that's gone down that you have learned from? That is a strength. And most of us, especially if it's you know, something we're ashamed of or something that we're really sad about, we try to hide that thing. One of the stories in the book is by this amazing entrepreneur, Kimberly Bryant. Kimberly, when she founded the organization she's now a part of called Black Girls Code, she remembers she really struggled with naming it. And she, in fact, went to a conference called Blogger, which you might know because it's still around. And she was she was talking to another entrepreneur and saying, you know, describing the problem. And she says, this other entrepreneur, Annalisa, put down her papers and stopped shuffling them and looked at her and said, if that's what you do, if you're going to teach black girls to code, call it that. And the tension that Kim had was the tension that a lot of people would have, which is when something has been viewed by society as not as meaningful, how do you then describe meaning to it? But you can, right? You can say you don't get to define it I get to define for me what black means and because it is a strength. And so as soon as she reclaims this, this mantle of what is strong for her, she can derive meaning from it and she can derive purpose from it. And that is the fuel that will keep her going. I love that.
1: Um, and Black Girls Code is an amazing organization that everybody should give money to
2: if they don't already. Yeah. She's already trained 10,000 black girls uh, to code in seven cities and it's expanding and I'm just super impressed with her because the story of how she had to reclaim it is a story we can all do which is look at any part of our life and if someone else has said for us that's not worthy if we find it worthy we can do that we can make it worthy just by paying attention to it so the way back to actually being able to change the quo is to make sure you never feel separated and alone so who are those people who are going to help you actually test out your ideas, maybe challenge you, but hold that space for you to be able to do the thing you need to do. And until you have that, you don't have anything else. And so a lot of what I spend the middle part of the book doing is really talking about how do you find those people? How do you first find them? How do you have a common framework? How do you have shared trust models so that you actually can lean on one another, right? There's that song about lean on me. And uh, if you can't have anyone to lean on, you really can't go forward. And then the back half of the book, I talk about how do you then lead change without losing the individuality of the people who first started the effort in the first place. So I'm basically going through the arc from you to us to together and reminding you how to own and claim your worth, your ideas, your contributions, but then not having to give it up in that other process as you join with others and ultimately get the shit done well i hope that everybody will pick up a copy of the power of Onliness.
1: make your wild ideas mighty enough to dense the world like this is this is just the beginning of this conversation on like how do you like how do you like put your anchor down and you know and be the best person that you can be and
2: like and make change for the communities that you live in yeah if there's one change that i do hope happens here It's that we stop looking outside of ourselves to understand what it is we have to contribute. Most of us are conditioned to do this comparative model. We're looking outside, you know, because that's where our eyes point. And uh, and we go, oh, how can I be more like Amina? Or how can I be more like Ann Friedman? Instead of going, what is it I distinctly can bring to this game of life and then bring it? Seriously, we we have all of the tools. You have all the power.
0: I take great comfort in the idea that like success is really thinking about like your individual goals, your individual strengths, like your individual desires and and leaning into that as opposed to being like how do I fit myself into this world.
1: The other reason I actually think this book is So perfect for our audience is because, you know, whenever you read books like this and then they give you examples of other people's lives, which is basically like what this is. It's like vignettes into like all of these like very high achieving people is that most people walk away with it being like, oh, my God, I want to be just like that person, Mm -hmm. which is always like it's always the wrong takeaway. (laughs) It's like, no, you're like not going to be Oprah. You're not going to be Ellen DeGeneres. You're like, you're not. It's not going to happen. The only person that you can be is yourself. The reason I like this book is that it is couched in. Like, how do you learn from all of these people's experiences to accomplish the goals that you have for yourself?
0: Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that, too, because, oh, God, we forgot to talk about that Vogue profile of Oprah, which is, like, one of the brightest spots of the past week. But in it, Oprah says, there's never going to be another Oprah, not because I'm so special and wonderful, but because the, like, ingredients that created who I am today cannot be replicated in this moment with, like, what's happening in the world now. Like, no no one can exactly follow in the footsteps of someone that they admire. And I just like, I I think that is so smart and so true. And I'm glad Nilofer is here to underscore that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was so good. And I'm glad that you bring up the Oprah thing too, because one thing that Oprah has always been so open about talking about, um, at least like really early on in her career and like kind of the the media myth around her was the kind of like all of the negative things that like made Oprah into who she is, right? Like her childhood was bad. And then like all of like all of these things. And just, like, realizing that, like, the worst things that happen to you, like, those things don't define you. Like, that's not what you are slated to be is, to me, like, that's the takeaway of all of these success stories. Is so, that, like, one, like, bad things happen to everybody. Like, life is tough for everybody. Relative, of course. Um, but sometimes, like, people just have, like, crappy, crappy things happen to them. And, like, that, those things don't have to be the defining moments of your life. And, in fact, like, if you can find it in yourself to be like resilient and to like um, and to harness all of that, it then, like, informs the, like, empathy, like, that you have with the world. And I think that's really powerful. Right.
0: Yeah. And acknowledging that, like, what makes you different, both in terms of, like, what's been hard for you, but also, like, what you're uniquely good at and all this other stuff. And the timing in which you exist and the people you've been lucky enough to meet randomly. Like, all of that adds up to who you are and what you're doing. I always try to stress that if, like, any, like, baby journos are like, I want to do what you do. It's like, sorry, not possible. Like, it's like going to look very different. <laughs> You're
1: like, I'm like standing literally right here in my OMO. Yeah, like, exactly. So
0: I'm like, like, I'm sorry. Were you born in Dubuque, Iowa in 1982? Did you graduate college exactly the year I did? Did you make every choice that I made? No. Well, it's not possible then. Like make your own choices, chart your own course, you and the world will be so much better for it.
1: And also really, like, trust the power of your own ideas. Like, something that is so soothing to me is that, like, so few ideas are new. Nobody's, like, inventing, like, I don't know, some sort of, like, revolutionary new thing. Just, like, trust your own gut, trust your own ideas, and bring your own ideas to fruition. Because that's probably the only thing that will ultimately make you happy. totally, And make you fulfilled. So all of that to say, like... Good luck to all of us.
0: <laughs> I feel like that's how we should sign off every week. Good luck to all of us. Good like, luck to all of hope us. Hope we'll still be know, here I'm next week. I'm just like, listen,
1: <laughs> hope we'll still be here. Korea, like North Korea does not want us to podcast next week. So like, <laughs> I, maybe some of it is like getting older. Maybe some of it is that we're living in this like really bonkers time in history. But there's something like really soothing about knowing that you have a lot of tools.
0: Ugh, great. All right. I'm gonna use my tools and complete the rest of my work for the day now.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna use my tools and to make lunch. Ugh. You the best, Gina's the best. <gasps> and what? did you watch Khaled Snapchat? Which one? No, I didn't. I've been I've been did not internet. Khaled flew for the first time in ten years. <gasps> year. Oh my god. <laughs> he did it. He finally overcame his fear of flying. He's been talking about it for years. He did, obviously, Assad made him do it, which was, like, great, because Assad is a wizard. But also, like, T.J. Khaled, like, flew. I, like, almost cried. It was so beautiful.
0: I'm not even kidding. I pictured his arms widespread and him just, like, flying like a bird when you said that. <laughs> like, <laughs> not in a plane.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like, imagine how much money he has turned down because he's so afraid of flying. Like, he's finally going to be, like, Oprah rich now.
0: Right, they don't want you to fly. <laughs>
1: They don't want you to fly. He was like, I'm a lion. I gotta fly. It was, like, beautiful. Isn't that a griffin, the part,
0: technically? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the best part of it is that at the end, obviously, like, at the end of the Snapchat, his, like, team used his own money to throw him a surprise party that was, like, the we did it party. <laughs> I was like, this is too much. I'm so happy for Assad. I'm happy for Khalid. I'm happy for all of us who will, like, get to see him in international locations now. Uh. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. Download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast or on Apple Podcasts, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can tweet at us at callyrgf or email us callyrgf at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Look that up yourself or on Instagram at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. All other music you heard today was composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. And this podcast is produced by the beautiful Gina Delback.
0: Okay, I'll see you on the internet. <laughs>
1: Bye,
2: boo-boo.